A little over, little over a year ago, I was asked to serve on the LOCC and the SAD of the CMA. <laughs> you thought only the military had really cool acronyms. ABF, that's Alliance Bible Fellowship, is part of a small denomination called the Christian and Missionary Alliance, or the CMA. We don't really make a big deal about that around here. We choose to partner with them because we think they do the work of missions very, very well. Now, remember last week, I, I suggested that the Great Commission, the work of missions, includes going and sharing the gospel, baptizing new believers, and then training them to observe the teachings of Jesus as found in the gospel. So, the, the CMA, Christian Missionary Alliance, focuses on going around the world, sharing the gospel, baptizing new believers, and, and forming new churches where new believers can then be taught and discipled and start the process all over again. Again, the CMA is not the only group doing that. We just happen to think they do it very well. So, the Christian and Missionary Alliance is divided into a number of districts in the U.S., A district is a, is a region usually within state boundaries where churches partner together to do the work of the gospel. Our district, the South Atlantic District, is made up of North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. We have just over 100, I think it's about 105 CMA churches in the South Atlantic District, the SAD, <laughs> the SAD District. Now, there are various committees made up of primarily pastors who do the business of the district. For example, I used to serve on DEXCOM. That even sounds military. The district executive committee, which handles, again, that business of the district, finances, opening, closing, churches, things like that. Well, another committee is the LOCC, the licensing or ordination and consecration council. This committee is made up of about, I think it's eight or maybe ten pastors across the district, and our primary responsibility is to ordain new pastors. Well, what, what does that mean? Well, when, when a man feels called to be a pastor, he usually goes to school, Bible college or seminary, maybe both, to be academically and theologically prepared to be a pastor. For, for very obvious reasons, most of the classes cover, you know, the Bible, Bible interpretation, theology, church history, church business, pastoral leadership, pastoral counseling. Uh, those are some of the classes. Then, having Having graduated, the, the new graduate starts the, the, the job search, sending out resumes to churches, hoping to become a, a pastor. So, for example, when we were collecting resumes for our executive pastor position, most of those 140 resumes that I talked about last week came from new seminary graduates. Well, once you are hired or, or called by a, by a church, there's another significant step in your process. It's called ordination. The idea comes from Acts chapter 13, when the Holy Spirit called out 
Paul and Barnabas to be missionaries. And then the, the church then laid hands on them and commissioned them for, for the work they were called by God to do. A little later, when Paul wrote two of his letters to a young pastor named Timothy, he referenced the time that Timothy was commissioned by the laying on of Paul's hands. So the idea of ordination seems to be the official setting apart of someone for the gospel ministry. Now, ordination has evolved just a little bit through the years uh, to include preparing the young pastor for pastoral ministry beyond his formal education. And that process, uh, depending on the denomination, can take up to a couple of years of study or, or reading, maybe writing papers, meeting with a mentor, an older pastor, and it concludes with an examination to determine the man's doctrinal, biblical readiness. This is... this. Examination is called the oral exam when the candidate for ordination sits before that L-O-C-C, a group of seasoned and especially bright pastors <laughs> who grill him for a couple of hours about Bible knowledge and doctrine. Might be interested to know that David Ellington and Michael Talley are both in that two-year ordination process, and that David is about to have the oral examination in just a couple of weeks, I think three weeks, on August 5th. So all joking aside, pray for him. It's a very intense process. But, but don't you think it's a good process when other pastors help prepare and then examine a young man to ascertain his readiness for ministry? I mean, after all, we are talking about handling the eternal Word of God and the eternal souls of people. So, after I was first elected to the ordination committee, we met just over a year, uh, just about a year ago for our first oral examinations. I, I was kind of excited. I kind of liked the Bible and doctrine and theology and sitting around for three days for eight or ten hours a day grilling fresh meat, I, I mean new candidates, <laughs> kind of sounded like fun. We had a group, I think, of about four or five guys who were presumably ready to be examined. And so in came the first guy, a pastor from South Carolina. And, I, and, and I'd met this guy before, and I have to tell you, he, he was really smooth. I, I had heard him give a presentation to Dexcom, like saying that, after uh, uh, asking for money a couple of years before that, and it was really, really slick. I mean, if the pastor thing doesn't work out for him, he should probably, I don't know, try and sell cars or something. So, so I had really high expectations. I mean, this guy had gone through Christian school growing up, Bible college, and even seminary. We started the examination, my first guy, and I was shocked, frankly, aghast. The guy 
did not know his Bible. He could not articulate theology. I was speechless. Remember, first one. I, I, I kept thinking all through that two or three hours. Is, are they all going to be like this? R- really? W- was I expecting too much, you know, for a young pastor to be able to defend the faith? We dismissed him. That's what we do to discuss the exam and then vote on his ordination. I didn't know what to say. Neither, apparently, did anyone else because, thankfully, the room was silent for quite a little while. I looked around. I'm thinking I'm the new guy. I didn't want to send the guy. No, actually, I did want to send the guy down in flames. Finally, someone said, well, that was disappointing. I thought, good, maybe I'm not so far off after all. I won't go into all of the candidate said because he didn't say anything, frankly, worth repeating, nor will I share what the LOCC talked about. That's all confidential. But I will, but I will say this with a measure of pride, I'm sure, I am quite confident that most of you would have done a much better job than this young man. So, you can pray for David and the other candidates coming in in a couple of weeks because now I'm loaded for bear. They better come prepared. And, and, and by the way, the other men that day did much, much better. I would go to any of their churches. But I remember thinking, if this is the way that some of our guys are prepared for church ministry, it's no wonder our churches are in such bad shape. It is no wonder surveys are taken of churches across our country which reveal biblical illiteracy. Biblical illiteracy. Pastor Lloyd, our new executive pastor, forwarded me just this week an article entitled, Seven New Trends in the Pastor Search Process. It was an article about how many churches today are conducting pastoral searches. It was quite interesting to read. And and one of the seven points made by the article was this, point number three, more leadership questions are asked. This is right from from the article. In the past, Bible and theology rightly dominated the questions asked of a prospective pastor. Today, those considering these pastors want to know more about his leadership qualities. We we had problems with two of our last three pastors, one church member wrote me, the guy writing the article, but none of those problems had anything to do with their theology. They just had terrible leadership skills. Now, don't misunderstand me. Leadership is incredibly important, 
But I was disturbed how Bible knowledge and doctrine were downplayed in the article. In fact, this is the only item where it was mentioned. The other six trends had to do with website design, temperament, you know, give him a disc test or something, or social media content. Go see what he says on his Facebook page. Nothing about the Bible. Again, it's no wonder surveys, survey after survey shows our churches are biblically illiterate. We seem to be looking for pastors who can lead well, communicate well, but my questions are lead where and communicate what? For example, and I said all that to say to get to this point. It is no wonder that surveys consistently reveal that all, almost half of church members in Christian churches, almost half of church members in Christian churches say things like, well, yes, people in other religions will make it to God. Yes, people in other religions will make it to heaven. Meaning, sure, Jesus is nice, but he's not necessary for salvation. I want you to listen very, very carefully. Any teaching that diminishes the supremacy should be on the screen. Any teaching that diminishes the supremacy, sufficiency, and necessity of Jesus Christ is unbiblical heresy. I wrote that. Let me say it again. Any teaching that diminishes the supremacy, sufficiency, and necessity of Jesus Christ is unbiblical heresy. People have always attacked the person of Jesus Christ. Because he is the centerpiece of our faith. They have done so since the beginning of the Christian church. I, I, think about it. It was the religious leaders who were the ones who led the way in the trial of Jesus and his deliverance to Pilate to be, cruci to be crucified. It was the religious leaders. A demonic plot to be sure. But all according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God to provide for the redemption of people, the forgiveness of sins, because Jesus is supremely necessary for our salvation. So we should not expect that those attacks against Jesus will cease. In fact, Jesus told us, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you also. And that persecution has always come against what we believe. For the first almost three centuries of church history, the church itself was viciously attacked, persecuted. Many early Christians were martyred for their faith. Then, when Christianity was declared uh, a legal religion early in the 4th century, 313, uh, Constantine, the, uh, the Edict of Milan, all of that. The demonic attacks against the faith continued against the person of Jesus. 
against his person and work. For example, there was this guy named Arius who was running around about, about that time, early 4th century, teaching that Jesus was not fully God. At least he was not God in the same way that God the Father was God. He said things like, there was once a time when the Son was not. I want to be clear, I did not write that. There was once a time when the Son was not. Is that true? He taught further that since Jesus was created by the Father, He was of a different essence then and inferior to the Father, of a different essence, then, and inferior to the Father. Is that true? So the first church council, not counting the one in Acts 15 in Jerusalem, first church council, according to church history, was held in 325 A.D. It's called the Council of Nicaea, to deal with, among other things, this teaching of Arius. They called the council, you see, because the biblical teaching of the supremacy, sufficiency, and necessity of Jesus Christ was at stake. Arius' teaching threatened to take over the church. So, the council was held, and a bunch of seasoned pastors, I think 318 if I remember correctly, got together to discuss this doctrinal issue. And Arius was rightly condemned as a heretic, and the deity of Jesus Christ was rightly upheld. And these church leaders then wrote a, a creed dealing directly with the false teaching of Arius. It's called the Nicene Creed. Now, I want you to listen to it. Very important. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen, visible and invisible. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten. There was never a time when He was not eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God true God, begotten, not made, of one being. He was the same essence with the Father. Through Him, all things were made. Is that true? You bet it is. For us and for our salvation, He came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary, and He was made man. Is that true? You bet it is. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Is that true? I can't read this without standing up. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Philippi, we won't get into that. With the Father and the Son, He is worshipped and glorified. He is spoken through the prophets. Is that true? We believe in one holy Catholic, it means universal and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and for the life of the world to come. Amen and hallelujah. 
All of this is important, and we believe it, and we should be able to explain and defend the truths of this statement and others like it. See, this creed is almost like a hymn. Now, I said hymn. Now, when we think of hymns, we think of something like four verses followed by a chorus, usually sung in four-part harmony to a certain tempo or meter, usually with certain instruments, and we normally skip the third verse. Right? Michael Talley and I were talking about this uh, this week, and we decided if, if you're going to be a hymn writer, you should put your weakest verse as the third verse because no one's ever going to read it. But when I use the word hymn to speak of things written hundreds, even thousands of years ago, at the time of the apostles and beyond, I mean something just a little bit different. A piece of prose was a writing was considered a hymn if it contained a certain style, stylistic, a, 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 a rhythmic lilt when read aloud, a correspondence between words and phrases which are carefully chosen and positioned, traces of rudimentary meter, and the use of certain rhetorical devices. I know, I have been accused of being a history teacher, so I'm switching to English. The second criteria of, of an ancient hymn beyond style is linguistic, a, a, an unusual vocabulary and the presence of theological terms. So all of that to say, as you listen to the Nicene Creed, you certainly hear lots of theological terms, and there is a certain rhythm and an intentional arrangement of the text from Father to Son to Spirit, for example. So we would call that, we would call that creed a hymn. Hymns or creeds were part of the church from the earliest days. There's some evidence that the Apostles' Creed, that some of you grew up quoting every week, every Sunday, which is not a bad thing. Um, there's some evidence that the Apostles' Creed goes all the way back to the early second century. But not only that, there is evidence of early hymns even in the New Testament. For example, we looked at what was likely an early hymn in Philippians chapter 2. Listen to it as I read it. Listen to it for, theologic, for its theological terms and its rhythmic quality. Who, and that's talking about Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as man, I feel like I ought to rap. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in the heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I can't read that sitting down. You'll remember that when we looked at that, it was an amazing piece of prose. It's interesting to observe this early hymn, either written by Paul or borrowed by Paul and put in his letter to the Philippians. I want you to notice that this hymn is all about Jesus and the Nicene Creed. 
was all about our triune God with a special emphasis on Jesus because from the earliest days of the church, the person and work of Jesus have always been attacked. And so it is most appropriate in our Christian faith that we focus um, our attention on the high and exalted name of Jesus. You should know well his person and his work so that when attacked, you know it. So that when attacked by Charles Taze Russell, the founder of the Jehovah's Witness movement, which teaches the same heresy that Arius taught that was condemned, when the likes of Russell show up knocking on your door and start saying wrong things about Jesus, you can spot the heresy and dismiss it like the early church regularly did. You can't buffalo me with that stuff. Remember I told you a few weeks ago when we began Colossians that we want to be so familiar with the real thing that, that when the counterfeit is presented, we can spot it a mile away. The World's Fair of 1893 was known as the World's Columbian Exposition. It was held in Chicago about 400 years after Christopher Columbus came to the New World, hence the world's Columbian Exposition. 1893. You might be interested to know that the previous World's Fair was in 1889, four years before this, held in Paris, France. And in Paris, France, in 1889 at the World's Fair, they unveiled what? Does anybody know? The Eiffel Tower. And so four years later, after the Chicago fire and everything, the U.S. and Chicago was on a world stage, so they knew they had to do something really, really, really big. And so they created this entire city, but the centerpiece of the city was, was developed by a, an engineer named George Ferris, the Ferris wheel, to compete with the Eiffel Tower. The thing was massive. It was, it was huge. I won't test you on that later. 1893, some 21 million people, 21 million people visited the exhibits. That was huge. Among the exhibits was the, quote, World Parliament of Religions, in which representatives of world religions met to share the best parts of their respective religions. Yeah, the hope was that they could perhaps come up with a new world religion. R really? In the United States. Well, evangelist D.L. Moody, knowing that millions would attend, saw the fair as a wonderful opportunity to share the gospel. He assigned his evangelists to various what he called preaching points or, or posts throughout the city. He, he used churches. Uh, he, he rented theaters. He even rented a huge circus tent from which he himself preached the gospel. And as he got started, many of his friends encouraged him to attack this world parliament of religions 
exhibit. Now, it is most appropriate to expose heresy and, and to expose false teaching and, 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 and world religions and cults and, and the like. But he refused. And this is what he said. I am going to make Jesus Christ so attractive that men will turn to him. And that's exactly what he did. He knew that Jesus was peerless. And if presented clearly, the gospel itself would draw people. He preached the gospel, and it did. Thousands came to faith in Christ in the World's Fair of 1893 in the face of the World Parliament of Religions. This, you see, is my desire, to present Christ from the Scripture all of which, the Scripture, all of which declares Him so clearly and so beautifully that it will draw people to the supremacy, sufficiency, and necessity of Jesus Christ. And by the way, not only am I in good company with D.L. Moody, not only am I in good company with the Nicene Creed, but I am in good company with the Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians. And you wondered when we were going to get there. I need everybody right now to just take a deep breath because we're not going to get to the text. <sighs> you thought we were going to be here all afternoon. We know that false teachers, surprise, surprise, had begun spreading heresy in Colossae. Now, when I say heresy, you got to understand that when we're talking about world religions, we're talking about false religions, but when we're talking about cults or heresy, we're talking about false teaching within Christianity. They started teaching false things about Christianity, about Christ. We don't know uh, how much at this point that they had infiltrated the church, but we, know, uh, but we know there was a danger. We don't know even exactly what they were teaching, although we can surmise much of that from Colossians chapter 2. But before we get there, knowing that the false teachers were attacking Christ, Paul lifts high the person and work of Christ in this hymn of chapter 1. Lots of discussion about whether Paul borrowed this hymn, whether he wrote this hymn, or whether he modified the hymn to fit his purposes. In the end, it doesn't matter. What we have before us is a hymn, a creed of highest Christological. Remember I said Christological means the study of Christ, the highest Christological importance. As believers, we can run to it when Christ is attacked and we can defend him. More than that, as believers, we can run to it and be reminded of the exalted supremacy, the full sufficiency, and the absolute necessity of Christ, our great Savior. Read the hymn with me, or, or listen to it as I read. Colossians 1 verse 15 says this, He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. That is unbelievable. 
That is a a treasure, a hymn of inestimable value. It communicates enormous, exalting, eternal truth. It's followers of Christ. Listen to me. We should know this passage. It lists Jesus so high, it will help us detect counterfeits almost every time. It will take us to the loftiest heights as we consider our great Savior. Listen to what one pastor, John MacArthur, has to say about this passage. Of all of the Bible's teaching about Jesus, and he just written for pages about how all of the Bible is about Jesus. Of all of the Bible's teaching about Jesus Christ, none is more significant than Colossians 1. This dramatic and powerful passage removes needless doubt or confusion over Jesus' true identity. It is vital, I would say indispensable, to a proper understanding of the Christian faith. So, let me Let me this morning break the passage up for you, then we're going to spend the next couple of weeks digging into it. In other words, let us just take a a look, a, a brief look right now at the forest before we take a look at the trees. Paul has just finished his thanksgiving and, uh, uh, and prayer for the Colossians in verses 3 to 14. His prayer, by the time we get to verse 10, was that we all walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And then he went on to talk about what that worthy walk looked like, bearing fruit, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with his power, and giving thanks, because Christian people are are thankful people. And we give thanks to who? He told us, the Father who rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's verse 13. Great verse. And then verse, and in this beloved son, verse 14, we have redemption. In this beloved son, we have the forgiveness of all of our sins. And then Paul breaks out into this hymn. Again, don't know whether he wrote it, whether he borrowed it, whether he modified it. Doesn't matter. It's in this letter of inspired scripture. Been lots of attempts to break down the hymn into various stanzas or or verses. I am not going to break it down into four verses. You'd ignore the third. Usually, two or three stanzas, I'm going to go with the following very simple outline. The supremacy of Christ over creation, verses 15 to 17, and the supremacy of Christ over his church, verses 18 to 20. Now, remember, I suggested that an early hymn or a creed had a rhythmic style with intentionally placed words full of theological terms. This, this hymn is full of that which leads to that particular outline on the screen. Notice, for example, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That's the, that's the beginning of the first stanza. That's the beginning of the first verse. And from there, Paul goes on to talk about how Christ is the firstborn. And we're going to find that means the head over, the, 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 the supreme over all creation, All things were created in him. This is a literal translation. All things were created through him. All things were created for him. And as Yoda would say, all things he is before. And all things hold together in him. Notice how Paul uses all or every over and over eight times in these six verses. To take us to the highest degree 
in this one sentence in the Greek. He is the firstborn of all creation. All things were created in him. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. In him, all things hold together. He will come to have the first place or the supremacy in every, or more literally, in all things. For all the fullness of deity dwells in him. And through him, all things are reconciled. We are supposed to be overwhelmed by the majesty and overarching supremacy of his greatness over all things as we read this. Notice how verse 15 is similar to the beginning of the second stanza, verse 18. He is also the head of the body. He transitions now to the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn. He repeats that from the dead. And we're going to talk about the word firstborn next week. But the point is, there is a certain rhythm. There's a certain style to these six verses. In fact, I went to YouTube, and I, I, I looked it up. And I was disappointed to find that Lecrae had not put this to a wrap. Someone needs to call him. These verses are full of theological truth. We will get to it. I'm done. For this week, I wanted us to do a flyover of this passage to get our bearings before we dip down into its incredible theological detail. We're going to find that Jesus is the exact image of God. He is supreme over all creation. He created all things and is therefore over all things. And all things were created for him. He is therefore before all things. He is eternal. He sustains all things. Without him, that means nothing would exist that exists. And without him, nothing would continue to exist. He is the head of the universal body of Christ, the church. He is the head of this church. He is the beginning and hope of our resurrection as the firstborn from the dead. And all of this is so that he will have the first place, the, the supreme place in everything, because in him all the fullness of deity exists. In, it is through him all things in heaven and on earth will be reconciled, having made peace by the blood of his cross. He is incredibly awesome and highly exalted. And we will dive into that next week. You know that it is a special passage if it requires its own introduction. Meditate on it this week. In fact, I challenge you, memorize it this week. It will serve you well. Let's stand for prayer. Father, this is, this is a passage of such great importance that I words fail to articulate how critically important it is to us. Would you help us this week and beyond as we, as we dive into it to uncover just some of its depths, unfathomable depths, and would you help us to come away impressed even more and more with Jesus? May he be highly exalted for who he is and what he has done for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.